The views, information, or opinions expressed during this recording are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Alberta Health Services and its employees. This is Long COVID, the pandemic after the pandemic, an Alberta Health Services webinar and podcast series. Long COVID is now being recognized as a new chronic condition that is becoming better understood across the globe. We aim to support our healthcare providers and caregivers to find and use appropriate resources for themselves, their patients, and clients. We'll share stories from patients and providers and explore the innovative work being done in Alberta, across Canada, and globally to support long COVID. This series will help raise awareness of all the work that's being done to understand and address this complex puzzle. Hello, everyone. This is Long COVID, the pandemic after the pandemic. It's an Alberta Health Services webinar and podcast series, and I'm your host, Shauna Curry. This is our fourth and final episode of this four-part series. We're going to interview some guests today to talk about where Long COVID started, the common trends and themes that have emerged, and thoughts about where Long COVID might be headed. This webinar is being recorded, so please mute your phones if you're calling in, and if you have any questions for our guests, please type them in the chat box and we'll answer as many as we can at the end. This series has explored both the patient perspective and the provider perspective around long COVID. We've looked into some of the innovative solutions and technology that's been implemented to support patients and programs for long COVID. Today's episode will take a big picture perspective and a look at where things started with long COVID and where we think we're going. When COVID started in 2020, we had no idea that COVID would even, or that long COVID would even exist. And now there's talk about COVID-19 becoming endemic. So that means a disease that's regularly found among a particular people or in a certain area. We're now at a phase of COVID where we have a better sense of what we're dealing with. So today we have a panel of three guests here to talk about their expertise related to long COVID. Our first guest on the show today is Dr. Christopher McCabe. He's the CEO and Executive Director of the Institute for Health Economics, or IHE. Chris has 30 years experience as a university-based health economist and trained and worked for 20 years in the UK before emigrating to Canada. In 2017, he was seconded to be the Chief Executive Officer of the IHE, a a not-for-profit research organization. Dr. McCabe is currently the chair of our Royal Society of Canada COVID Task Force Working Group on the Economy and a member of the same task force's working group on healthcare post-COVID. The IAG provided modeling to support the government of Alberta's decision to make uh, decision making during the first 18 months of the COVID pandemic. Dr. McCabe also worked with modelers at Simon Fraser University to evaluate alternative vaccine rollout strategies and to provide an early warning of the dangers of premature relaxation of COVID-19 protective measures in the summer of 2021. Chris now leads a national network for modeling infectious diseases focused on capturing the economic and social as well as health impacts of infectious diseases like COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. McCabe. Can you start by telling us a little bit about the Institute for Health Economics and what the IHE's role is related to COVID-19 and long COVID? 
Thanks, Shauna. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, so the IHG is a not-for-profit uh, research organization that was founded uh, just over 25 years ago now by the government of Alberta in collaboration with the University of Alberta and the University of Calgary. Uh, and, and from day one, we've had a, a strong relationship with, with private sector entities. So we, we, we kind of it's in our DNA to find solutions to problems at that intersection of the, uh, the public and the private sector. And uh, we're very privileged to have um, both rep senior representatives from uh, the uh, Alberta Health Services, uh, for, from the two universities and from uh, the government of Alberta on our board who help us, uh, give us our strategic direction. And, and obviously when COVID hit, um, we got a pretty clear steer from them to say, you know, um, you have a lot of mathematical modeling expertise, you understand our health system and our ecosystem, uh, you know, what the government or the health system wants when they ask for help, prioritize it. And I think, you know, that was completely the right thing to do. And so we, we were fortunate um, in that we'd already identified infectious diseases as, a, as an important area to create capacity. Uh, about 18 months before COVID hit, we started recruiting some very smart people with real expertise. Uh, and so we actually had a small team, about four people, that we could dedicate to, uh, to responding to the government's needs. So we were initially involved in you know, modeling the, the, the spread uh, of COVID and the effectiveness of the non-pharmaceutical interventions, and, and then modeling uh, the uh, alternative vaccine rollout strategies, uh, you know, who to, who to vaccinate first and in what order. Um, and we fed those uh, into the government and the health systems uh, discussions around what they were actually going to do. And over time, doing that work, we've built networks uh, across Canada uh, and indeed internationally with other, other people struggling with the same problems. Uh, and so we were able to make insights from those people's work uh, available uh, to the provincial decision makers. So it was a very intense sort of first, eight, first 18 months. Uh, and then as you know, we had the vaccines and things, uh, certainly in the acute phase started to stabilize uh, a, a fair bit. Uh, our day-to-day -day activity kind of uh, eased off. Uh, and we started to look, um, uh, okay, what's the economic impact been? Because uh, one of the one of the big policy problems we we all saw was this, uh, sadly, a, a she said he said argument about the uh, economy versus health, uh, and we didn't really have anything like the same quality of evidence about the economic impact that we had as for the for the health uh, and healthcare system, and, and so. We were very fortunate to be able to collaborate with uh, people from across the country to, to get funding from uh, uh, NSERC, one of the uh, Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council, and the uh, PHAC, the Public Health Agency of Canada, to create something called the uh, One Society Network, which is explicitly uh, created to, uh, to put together a cohort of people and experts who can build models, uh, pan-society models, so we can look at the impact on different sectors of the economy. But equally importantly, we can look at the impact on different groups within society. Uh, and so the intention of that 
uh, the ambition of that network is that, you know, going forward when we have our next infectious disease outbreak, because sadly we, you know, we're, we're on number four of this century. There's no reason to believe there'll be few, you know, that's going to reduce. Uh, we can provide decision makers with uh, a more comprehensive uh, account of the, the impact of any given policy decision. I think, you know, the, uh, the decision makers generally did the best they could with the evidence that was available, but they, we saw that there were many unintended consequences and, and, and we can hopefully put that information in front of decision makers before they make the decisions uh, so that, you know, that they can explain to the public. I think the public were great. They don't mind bearing costs if they understand the, the reasoning. And, you know, for, for, it's difficult for ministers to make these decisions if they can't justify them. So if we can give ministers good evidence about these broad effects, then their ability to justify and explain, communicate to the public the choices are being made and what those trade-offs are and why they're being made. I think we'll have a better kind of societal conversation and, and the, the social cohesiveness, which is essential to successful pandemic responses. I think we'll, we'll have a better chance of not just achieving it, but maintaining it in ways that I think we'd accept. We weren't uh, as successful in that sustained social cohesion uh, with COVID as we wanted to. Looking forward, we're now getting into thinking about COVID deficit. Um, and there's kind of there's three components to that. There's the, there's the catch up on the backlog. Uh, we know many people have waited a long time um, because of the pandemic and what that did to reallocating health system capacity completely appropriately. Uh, but, you know, we need to catch up. We also are trying to figure out how to estimate the excess demand due to delayed care. We know some progressive diseases, obviously the need for care will be greater because the, the access to care was not as timely as we'd like, you know, would normally be the case. Uh, and then, and I think very pertinent to this um, uh, podcast, is what's the new demand uh, due to exposure to COVID? Okay, so what's COVID-19, long covid going to mean for the health system, which existing services are going to you know, have to increase capacity, what new services might be required and where will we need to locate them? And we're really just at the beginning of that work, just starting to, to think about how that's, uh, that, that can be done. And I'm really I'm looking forward to uh, listening to uh, Dr. Henderson's discussion and description about uh, the rehabilitation programme and, and framework. I think that's going to be very fascinating. So that, that's a, a very quick run through all the different uh, things that we've been doing uh, in, in response to COVID. You know, it's, uh, you know, three years ago, I knew nothing about infectious diseases and, and uh, now I'm leading a network. It, it's a very strange world we've been living through. Uh, and, and as you've pointed out, there's been so much change over the past three years. Things have evolved tremendously. New jobs have been created. Jobs have changed. And I mean, COVID has really changed the landscape of, of healthcare. Um, as you pointed out, the Institute of Health Economics provides a, a really wide range of economic analysis to uh, inform the effective allocation of health resources, including economic analysis, cost effectiveness, uh, cost utility, cost benefit, uh, and or cost minimization. 
so what do we as a healthcare system need to consider in our planning for the long-term management of COVID-19 and, and long COVID? You, you sort of hinted at this already that, you know, we need to have this on our radar, but, you know, what are the things that we need to be considering? Yeah, it, it's, it's a really tough question. I mean, the first thing I want to say is, you know, the health system and all the people working in it responded incredibly. You know, without the, the flexibility and the not just going the extra mile, but going the extra marathon uh, of the health system, uh, things would have been so much worse. Uh, and in doing that, I think we, we will undoubtedly have learned a, a number of lessons, different ways of delivering care. Uh, I hope we learn the limits. You know, I think it's really, really important that, that we learn the limits of our health system's capacity to work at that intensity. Uh, and, and thank God they managed it. It was an incredible achievement. Um, but you know, what does that mean for the reserves that we want to have in the system going forward? Were we, you know, were we being too efficient uh, from a kind of a cost minimization perspective? Did we not have enough structural reserves? In our health system, uh, and, and you know, would we want to make sure that we've got more reserve going forward, so that you know, if we're hitting another infectious disease outbreak in five years' time, we're not going to burn through our staff in the same way that, uh, sadly, I think we all agree we have done to some extent. So, what does that mean? Uh, you know, what's the lessons there so that it's um, it, it, it's uh, it, it's more sustainable? We're ready, we're prepared, we have the reserve to, to respond to this sort of uh, outbreak. So I think we need to think about that. Um, the next thing I want to think we should think about is, is preparing for the fact that we are going to have more outbreaks. Uh, I saw a presentation uh, in late 2018 from the Chief Medical Officer of the UK in which he, he was talking about the the 20th century had been the, the, the century of chronic disease and the 21st century was going to be the, the century of infectious diseases. Uh, and, you know, um, I don't think he expected it to happen quite so quickly. Um, but, you know, I think he's true. He was correct. And, and we need to prepare for outbreaks. Uh, and we need to think about, well, how do we, um, how do we reduce the risk structurally? I mean, one of the things we all saw and we all want to learn the lessons from, is where we had uh, uh, accommodation with lots of people. I can't think of the right phrase at this second. So the long-term care homes, et cetera, the, 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 you know, the, the community living spaces or even small accommodations in large apartment blocks with shared ventilation. Those are actually, now we recognize risk factors. They reduce our, uh, our robustness, our resilience against outbreaks for infectious diseases. So it's not just a healthcare system response. I think we need a, a cross-government response. One of the lessons that we learn from COVID to make us more resilient as a society uh, and as an economy uh, against infectious disease outbreaks, full stop. Um, I think we'll obviously want to learn the positive lessons, you know, uh, the, the ability to do remote care where it works well, but also some lessons about where it didn't work well. Understanding how maybe the way we financed care sometimes is a barrier to the uptake of that. Then we need to make sure we learn 
those lessons to, 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 to increase efficiency through remote care where we can and increase, you know, uh, our citizen satisfaction with the care service by keeping it closer to home. Um, I, I think we need to think about that. Um, I think we also need to think about on a more fundamental level, and this is drawing on the, the Royal Society Task Force on Future of Healthcare. Our healthcare has been incredibly centralised. Um, and that's partly why we had to stop so many different things, in all, because the hospitals became essentially where all the people with COVID were. So other people couldn't access their care. If we had more distributed healthcare, you know, if we had more community-based care, we'd have been able to have the COVID cases in the hospitals without having to close down so many other healthcare services. So I, I think looking forward, we should take a long, hard look at what we want our healthcare system to do uh, and whether hospital-based, not just for efficiency reasons, but also for robustness and resilience and responsiveness to our community's needs reasons, whether we really need to re-engineer uh, what we want our healthcare system to do and how we do it. There's some very big opportunities driven by the very big challenges that COVID and long COVID have brought to us. So uh, a lot in there, uh, but uh, yeah, I think we've got to treat this as an opportunity to, to step back and, and rethink some fundamental things about our healthcare system. Fantastic, thank you. One last question for you right now. We'll ask you some more questions at the end, but can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between pandemic and endemic and what that means for both COVID-19 and long COVID? This is a question that comes up quite often and there's still a lot of fuzziness around, you know, are we in an endemic? Are we there yet? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, so we, we, we can be a little technical and just say, okay, so, um, we say we have an, a pandemic when we've got an epidemic which is occurring strictly worldwide or certainly over a very large area and normally affecting a large number of people. So it, it has to be crossing borders, you know, international borders. Um, uh, endemic is about when, if you look at a particular geography or a particular group of people, you expect to find the disease present. Now, endemic doesn't mean, doesn't tell you anything about the prevalence, okay? So one of my concerns about the conversation that I've observed a bit around endemic is people don't realize you can have levels of endemicity or prevalence of an endemic disease that are simply not coherent with having a functioning economy or a functioning society, a functioning uh, health system. You know, we, we saw earlier this year in many health systems, problems getting enough staff to, you know, staff ward safely, staff ICU safely. We had in the, you know, hospitality sector, they couldn't get staff. The vaccines meant people were not being really ill you know, but they were ill for three or four days at a sufficiently high prevalence level. The workforce supply to many sectors in the economy became a real problem. You know, services, flights weren't taking off, operations weren't happening. So endemic 
can be a massive problem, even when you've got a vaccine that stops the worst outcomes at the individual level. Uh, high prevalence endemic infectious disease can really endanger economic and social functioning. And I think we need to remember that um, because I, I do think we're in an endemic state now. I think, you know, we're, we have an endemic, uh, and actually from a global perspective, we've still got a pandemic. You know, it's internationally prevalent in reasonably high numbers. So um, with endemicity, everyone's cumulative risk of exposure is really quite high, even if the numbers at any given moment in time are quite low. If you look over a year or 18 months, your chance of being exposed to somebody with the disease is probably quite high, that cumulative risk. And so this worries me because, I, and uh, Simon may well have things to say on this, much more knowledge on this, but this worries me from a long COVID perspective. The relationship between repeated infection and long COVID is something uh, I've seen talked about, but I don't think we have great evidence on yet. And we need that evidence in order to, in order to understand uh, the likely future burden of long COVID from endemic COVID-19. And so that's, that's my big concern looking forward, that we, to understand the scale of the challenge of long COVID, we need to understand the impact of repeated exposure, repeated infection. Uh, and whilst I think we'd all agree we are past the stage of needing to be ultra cautious for acute uh, COVID, you know, the, the precautionary principle is not in play for how we deal with uh, COVID-19. But I think we may need to be a little more cautious than we are currently being because what we don't know about long COVID and it's the potential negative effects of uh, long COVID with endemic COVID in our society would, to me, uh, indicates caution is required. We need to continue to be you know, using sensible protective uh, measures. We need to make sure that as many people as possible are vaccinated. Uh, because there's a big unknown about the burden of long COVID and what it will likely be in the future. So that's my uh, my big concern uh, with endemic COVID. Thanks so much for sharing. I think you've just taught all of us uh, a lot about uh, the future of COVID-19 and, and long COVID. Uh, we'll move on to our next speaker, who is Isabel Henderson from Alberta Health Services. Isabel is currently the Executive Director of Special Projects AHS. Prior to March 2019, Isabel was the Senior Operating Officer at the Glenrose Rehabilitation Hospital, or GRH, for 14 years. Concurrently, she served as the trustee for the GRH Foundation Board. In 2015, she was appointed as the chair of Capital Management, sorry, Capital Care Management Advisory Committee. Uh, in 2019, Isabel joined the board at IRSM, assuming the role of board chair effective January 2020. Isabel is currently an adjunct assistant professor uh, with the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Alberta and is a member of the Honorary Editorial Board of the Journal of Healthcare Leadership. Isabel is also a surveyor with Accreditation Canada. 
Under Isabel's leadership, the GRH received Canada's 3M Healthcare Quality Team Award in 2012. And Isabel's leadership has also been recognized through the Regional Reach Award for Leadership, the CCHL Medtronics Innovation Award uh, for Healthcare Leadership in Canada, and the AHS's President's Excellence Award uh, for Distinguished Service as the uh, opening donor for Autism Award. Uh, Isabel has accomplished a ton of work within Alberta Health Services and it's been a privilege being able to work with her. Uh, I know that she has quite a few things that have been landing on her plate today. So Isabel, if you're there, if you wanna turn your video on, I think you're there, you're off mute. Uh, there we go. I was like, I think you're there. I wasn't sure if you got pulled away for a moment. Yeah. Uh, so you've been the co-chair of the Long COVID Task Force and have been working with many different teams across Alberta Health Services to support Long COVID across Alberta. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the post-COVID-19 COVID Rehabilitation Framework, or PCRF, is and how it supports the direction and the management of Long COVID across Alberta? Sure, I'm happy to do that. And I have to, you know, preface my remarks with, you know, it, it takes an army and there has been an army of folks working on, on uh, all of these um, frameworks, resources, tools, pathways, etc. But sort of in a nutshell, um, the provincial post-COVID rehab framework has been really important to guide the work of the task force. It was actually created uh, over a year ago and it's founded on key principles, integration, lack of duplication, person-centered care, sustainability, and leveraging existing resources. So the framework provides the necessary pathways, the tools and supports that enable care providers to appropriately and systematically determine the level of functional impairment and the corresponding rehabilitation uh, that's required for patients with post-COVID conditions, including uh, those uh, with experiencing long COVID. So there are three elements. Uh, first is the completion of a screening or assessment. Uh, second is co-developing with the patient a collaborative rehabilitation care plan. And third is ensuring that there is care coordination and discharge planning with primary care. The framework considers patients at all levels in the health system. So from acute care to post-acute care to continuing care and then into the community. And uh, I have to say that the post-COVID functional status scale is a pivotal tool that's used uh, in screening. So this PCFS is used to identify rehabilitation and recovery needs of patients that have been diagnosed with or are expected to have, are suspected to have COVID-19. And any healthcare provider can administer the tool at any time during the patient's journey. And in fact, patients are also completing the tool themselves. The tool uses a four-point scale to describe the ability of the patient to function, with zero being no limitations and no symptoms uh, related to the COVID-19 infection, to four with there being severe limitations and being unable to care for themselves, being dependent on nursing care or for uh, support or assistance from another person due to the symptoms. And these could be you know, shortness of breath, severe fatigue, brain fog, Etc. So depending on the score within the framework, there are resources available to help patients in their recovery. So uh, for all patients, there is a series of universal self-management resources, and these should be shared with all patients as soon as possible, and they are available online, and I'll put the link in the chat. 
and they've been developed by our post-COVID task force and they are, um, they've been very useful. Uh, so for zero to one, most patients will actually be in this category. We're estimating about 75%. And so, as I mentioned, we do have a significant number of online self-management resources. Um, they're, they're based on symptoms and they are um, available to help patients and care providers. So for scores of two to three, these folks generally require more targeted resources. And just as an example, we do have a series that was created in the Calgary Zone by the Alberta Healthy Living Program. It's a series of videos, and these are great tools that are um, helpful for these patients in the, uh, who score on a two to three level. For patients that score at a three to four, and these are about you know, 25%, they usually require individualized multidisciplinary care. Um, and we do have a number of specialized resources uh, that will meet the needs of these patients. Uh, we have a number of interprofessional outpatient program clinics, we're calling them IPOP clinics, uh, to support patients with the very most severe um, symptoms within this three to four category. So not everybody in three to four is going to need the IPOP resources. Uh, there is one IPOP clinic in the Edmonton zone, and that's serving the northern part of the province. And the, there are two in the Calgary zone, and um, those, those support patients in the southern part of the province. And most of the care is actually provided virtually. Um, and there are also now some PCNs, so primary care networks and primary care providers who are beginning to offer specialized services. And of course, we have our community rehab services. We're providing a, a multitude of interventions for these patients. But I really need to stress that underpinning everything is the rehabilitation advice line. And it's been absolutely critical to support patients and providers uh, related to uh, post-COVID conditions, including those that are experiencing long COVID. So depending on where the patient lives, um, the rehab advice line can provide you know, information around resources, patient pathway information, um, exercises, rehab strategies, et cetera. And they're really um, geared to uh, helping patients who are experiencing symptoms lasting longer than four weeks. The mental health helpline is also available to um, support patients who are experiencing mental health concerns. And I should add that the ongoing self-management and support from primary care providers is absolutely essential. So it's kind of the, the base of the, of the system. So in summary, we've developed a wide array of tools and supports within this rehabilitation framework to help patients and providers wherever they are in their journey. And I might add that uh, we've been absolutely amazed uh, that we've had so much support from across um, AHS and beyond to roll out the framework so many partners from across the province uh, have pitched in. And we've also had a number of patients with lived experience who've guided us in this important work. So I'll turn it back to you, Shauna. Thanks so much for sharing all of that great information, Isabel. I, uh, I snuck in the resources into the chat box while you were talking there. So I included the links for the patient and provider pages, as well as the PCFS that you went into greater detail on. Uh, the other links that Isabel mentioned are also included within those pages. So if you want to search those, uh, they will be there. Uh, so Isabel, what are some of the key learnings that have come to light through your time on the Long COVID Task Force that we can draw on for possible pandemics in the future? You know, 
I, I guess I would have to say, you know, it, it takes a village and we have reached out and people have responded. They have stepped up and helped from across, um, as I said, the whole organization and beyond. I mean, we've had people, from, you know, academics, people from Workers' Compensation Board, FNIB, um, you know, uh, primary care networks, et cetera. So it's been, it's been a huge network that has been created. And I think that's because there's there was so much work and there's still so much to be done. I think that's the only way that you can tackle these 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 big big projects. So um, and then the other piece too is just you know having that that guidance from our patients with lived experience has been absolutely critical. Thank you. And one more uh, bigger, I guess, future question for you. Uh, as Dr. McCabe mentioned, it looks like COVID is here to stay, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, so how does that influence care as we shift into more of a maintenance model rather than being as reactive as we've had to be? Well, I guess, you know, we're trying to do projections to kind of be ready for what is required by these patients. And we know that even with some of the milder versions of, of um, COVID-19, people are still developing long COVID. Uh, so I think we need to kind of keep an eye uh, on, you know, the prevalence and it's very challenging uh, now um, because testing has, has changed compared to what it was like two years ago. But I think we need to keep keep an eye on that prevalence and keep pushing the innovation envelope because we will never have enough resources to, to care for the for these these patients if we just use what we're currently dealing with so we need to be innovative and you know virtual care has been absolutely um, I think uh, incredible for this to support the patient population Thanks, Isabel. And for anyone that missed it, our last episode feature, uh, featured innovation and talked about some of the innovative ideas that have been used within AHS, not necessarily that they're brand new ideas, but doing things that we've always done in a new way or taken technology from other areas and, and used it in, in new areas. So uh, that would be a great one to tune into. Our third speaker today is Simone de Carry. Simone, uh, Simone is an assistant professor at the University of Sherbrooke in Quebec. He has been involved in long COVID research since April 2020, having received a grant from the Fondation de CRCHES uh, to conduct a safety pilot clinical trial of uh, interdisciplinary rehabilitation for long COVID, uh, which was one of the first studies in this field. Uh, in December 2020, his team was also among the first to team up with the myalgic encephalomyelitis community to warn rehabilitation prof professionals about the harms of graded exercise therapy in this population. This led to a global movement focusing on the stop, rest, pace approach, uh, which AHS actually uses, I don't know if you were aware of that, uh, to promote safe rehabilitation. Uh, he conducted multiples, uh, online, uh, multiple online webinars for rehabilitation professionals and primary care clinicians about the management of long COVID. Uh, Simone was recently mandated by the Spore Evidence Alliance, the COVID End, and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research to conduct living systemic reviews of care models and management options for long COVID. In August 2021, he joins the WHO Expert Committee for Post-COVID-19 Conditions. 
Simone, there's been a tremendous amount of research on COVID-19. We were talking about this before the webinar launched, uh, as well as long COVID over the past two years. Can you talk to us a little bit about the patterns and trends that you're seeing from this research and so much of it that you've personally been involved with? Hello, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, yeah, I just want to say that I, I always have admired the, re, the Alberta Rehabilitation Framework. Uh, I've seen it from, from the beginning. It's awesome. And quite honestly, I'm a little bit jealous because uh, I, I want this in Quebec. Uh, so in Quebec, we're, we're moving forward with, with new initiatives to organize care around the province. Um, and, and I'm really inspired by what you did in Alberta um, across uh, all the province. So I'm, 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 getting, uh, I'm getting into this, uh, this right now. So thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Yeah, so research about uh, long COVID, um, it's, it's increasing rapidly. So we, we do many types of systematic review right now in, in diverse fields on long COVID and, and you see the number of citation growing exponentially um, every, every day is actually. Um, there is some key elements and key trends that, that are actually uh, happening right now. Um, the, the big question was from January with the Omicron wave, what was going to happen because the profile of the Omicron strain was diff was slightly different than, than prior. Um, now we have data, most likely, most from, from the, the, the UK with the Office for National Statistics that now shows that even with triple vaccination, even with Omicron, it's possible to get a breakthrough long COVID cases. Uh, the risk is lower, so the UK now, now talks about 7 to 8% of all cases who are going to develop um, persistent symptom at 12 weeks, which is the current definition from, from WHO. So it's approximately half lower than the previous estimate with previous strain, but it's still, since there, there are many, many infections with Omicron, the total number that we're expecting is slightly um, uh, higher. And this is what you're seeing in the curve. So right now, um, some countries, and I, before we, we air, uh, I talk about the report from the US that was published uh, just earlier today. They talk about it with as a percentage of the complete population. So in, in the UK, they, they talk about 3.1% of the complete population who are suffering from persistent symptoms of COVID-19. And in the US, they talk about 7.5% of the population. I need to look at these at, at these numbers in more detail, but that's that's one of the message right now. And why it's important is that when you look at it as a percentage of the old population, um, you can compare with other disease to understand the level of services that you need to organize. Um, and there is a new data that is still in preprint and that's very important. And now it's the disability weight. So, the so every disease that causes a disability can be classified about the extent of the impairment and the disability. And for long COVID, it's, it's calculated to be equivalent to moderate to traumatic brain injury 
or chronic severe, um, severe neck pain, which is a significant amount of disability and impairment. So th these are both variables that you need to think about, the number and the disability weight to understand how you organize your rehabilitation and healthcare services. There is another researcher in the in the US um, who, who is publishing a series now in nature medicine. Uh, it's Dr. Hal Halley. And two of these recent reports are some I, I'm, I'm worried about these reports. The first is about breakthrough long COVID cases following vaccination. So the prior report talked about the protection of approximately 50%. In this report, um, use the veteran uh, database, which is a very used database, high quality in the United States. They talk more about the 15% protection from vaccination. So basically, right now, we, we, we expect long COVID cases breakthrough, even with uh, appropriate vaccination. So we're protected against uh, severe case, death, and hospitalization, but long COVID appears to to be something that that that's going to happen uh, until well the virus is, is there. There is no there is no scenario from WHO that the virus disappears. So this is a reality. Um, and to answer uh, Dr. McCabe. Um, um, comments uh, previously, there is a new report from this research team still in preprint that talk about the risk of reinfection and it's not a positive report. So in the report, uh, the number each time you get a reinfection actually increases your risk of different sequelae. Um, that's where we are and it's, it's 40,000 cases versus close to a million control if I remember right this report. So this is extensive data sets. Uh, and it doesn't, it, it goes into this direction right now. It can change, it can evolve. But in my mind, in the next two or three years, we need to deal with this situation which is happening. So that's an overall landscape of, of a new report. If you go into treatment, what did you like? This is the current context. What do we do with this? Um, three things. First, there is a WHO clinical practice guideline <laughs> on the rehabilitation of long COVID, and it's going to be published very, very soon. Um, so it's coming. And what's interesting? From, from, from this guideline. And a few other guidelines are moving into that, that, this direction. It's about um, rehabilitation based on impairment level and condition level specific. Because we know that the evidence base and clinical studies for long COVID, the pace is not rapid enough to, um, well, it's not the pace is that we've tried the, the, the uh, overall clinical strategy to, to find like one intervention that, that will improve rehabilitation of long COVID. But we know now that it's most likely not the best approach and clinicians have been working with this population for two years. They, they already know, they already moved toward this. So the clinical practice guidelines are, are following. What I mean here is that you have a complex condition. We have many, many, many different subgrouping possibilities. So you need to think about 
rehabilitation intervention that are specific with the specific outcome. If you have a long COVID patient with a lot of breathlessness, well, you need breathlessness intervention, which is different than a patient with a lot of uh, post-exertional malaise. Sometimes all these subgroups are, are intertwined together, but you need to think about it with impairment level and you need to assess the effectiveness of your intervention with very specific tools. So this is where we are going in the next years. And many physicians already know this, but um, rehabilitation by itself won't save many, many of these patients. Rehabilitation, uh, rehabilitation helps stabilize the symptoms, helps support during the, the, the natural recovery very important role to organize life around the new disabilities. It's a very important role, but it's a medical disease. So what we're going to see in the next, and, and we've started work this morning, uh, not this morning, but <laughs> we started work uh, uh, very, very early about what are the next clinical trials. We, we see this in pre, like when we look at uh, clinicaltrials.gov, um, and, and preprint servers, we're trying to do an analysis of what are the next um, interventions and what are the next pharmacological interventions. Because you would want, there are many diseases, like you, you wouldn't think about managing cancer or rheumatoid arthritis only with uh, physical approaches. You need, you need pharmacological options to help the patient stabilize their symptoms. So this is what we're going to see next. Two types, new, new um, pharmacological options that are going to be developed and go into phase one, phase two, phase three, and repurposed drug. If, if I have a patient with breathlessness, can I try uh, uh, asthma medication that's always already been tri trials? So this is where it's going next. And we're going to see a lot of about care models, organization, care pathways, and standardized uh, health professional training, because this is a complex disease. So you, you cannot just um, start and improvise. Uh, we, we already know that clinician needs exposure to this disease to, to really um, develop their, their skills. So this is what you're going to, to see next in Canada. So that's about it for my update. <laughs> That was fabulous. Thank you so much, Simone. I, I love how you highlighted that, you know, providers typically like to have a well-framed out approach and, and that COVID is COVID management is not, you know, textbook in the same way that it is for every other, shouldn't say every other condition, but many of our conditions, we have our standard clinical practice guidelines and typically what works in one patient will work in another. And, you know, we're not seeing that with the COVID population that things are very different from person to person. So while there, there needs to be this, uh, the World Health Organization out the clinical practice guidelines, I think it's really key to highlight that professionals need to use their professional expertise and tailor that information specific to the symptoms the patient is presenting with in front of them. Uh, so that ties into the work that you've done with the stop rest pace approach to safe rehabilitation. Um, we've embraced that into our work within Alberta Health Services. Um, a typical rehab program for most medical conditions would focus on a gradual or a graded return to exercise. Can you talk more about the specifics of why this approach doesn't work for someone with long COVID? Yeah, so this brings back, I know exact, the exact date and the exact date is December 20th, 2020. 
because that's the date where our first funding was about adapting pulmonary rehabilitation to long COVID. So as many experts know in this field, pulmonary rehabilitation is based on exercise programs. So that's what we thought we were going to do. So we had the ethics approval to, to start a pilot trial. But at this time, when we, we started recruiting and announcing over social media, the myalgic encephalomyelitis community um, called back and said, like, just stop because you're going to have a problem. And 48 hours after this was the, I, most likely this, the first study that really started the long COVID field, which is the Davis study, um, the, the, the first survey with 3,000 long COVID patients. There was a few publications before with uh, Trisha Greenall from, from the UK, but the really extensive survey, it was, it was published that date. And it was the first piece of evidence. It was the first time that they asked patients about post-exertional malaise, which is the diagnostical mark of myalgic encephalomyelitis. So what, what post-exertional malaise is, is basically you do any types of exertion, cognitive, uh, emotional, or physical, and they, they have a massive relapses of all their symptoms. And it's in the last five years, it's physiologically explained. It's a mitochondrial deficit um, based most likely on the on a previous um, immunological response that, that, was, that was inappropriate. So we have a better understanding of the physiology of this. So basically they do exertion and they, they crash, they relapse. And we now add this data in long COVID and we knew, and, and patients with long COVID, um, 75 to 80% of them reported that they tried to rehabilitate themselves because you need to understand at this time, many of more than a third of all COVID cases were actually healthcare professionals. So these are physically fit people who are on the front line. Um, so they, they try to rehabilitate themselves um, from the virus doing physical activity. And they reported that in many, many of these cases, they crashed. So that's where the first link appeared. Then we talked with communities and came up with a proposal for the stop, press, and pace approach. And then we redid the clinical trial to test this. The, the results are, are coming. Just to say that the results show that you, with pacing approaches, you can help a, a person to actually reduce the frequencies and the severity of their symptom, but it's not by itself a silver bullet. You don't improve quality of life significantly or fatigue. You, you stabilize. You help them stabilize and avoid relapses. And from this, um, we have at least two other reports that said exactly, exactly the same thing. You have approximately 75% of patients who demonstrate this very particular symptom and relapse with physical activities. So you cannot use this approach as for rehabilitation as the basic frame. However, our understanding improves. So there are two things to consider with clinicians who actually work with, this, with these patients. First is that you still have a subset of 20% uh, of patients who don't necessarily have the symptoms. So these patients can be uh, brought in more traditional rehabilitation approaches. And we have the tools to screen and, and find these patients. And it's already all implemented in the Alberta um, 
uh, rehabilitation framework. You already know about how to do this, but it's important. And when you talk with clinicians, um, they also know that um, over the course of six months, nine months, 18 months, um, there is a natural recovery process that can happen in many patients. Some, some don't. There are permanent uh, disability right now that, that we're starting to see. But, but if, if the patient don't reduce their cycle of relapses, some of them actually can um, recover from this particular symptom and can then go into new phases of rehabilitation. This is possible, but we don't have the data to actually predict this very uh, specifically. So that's, that's the story of post-exertional malaise and physical activity in long COVID. Thank you. That's uh, so much information. It's, uh, it's almost overwhelming how much research has been done on, on long COVID in such a short period of time. And I feel like I could talk to you all day and just learn, you know, soak it all up. Uh, one last question I'll put out to the entire group. Uh, I see we're, we're just about out of time here, but for each of you to answer, COVID's been really hard on people in so many different ways. From, from your experience, what's been the silver lining in COVID or what good has come out of the pandemic? Pandemic. Uh, maybe we'll start with Dr. McCabe. Oh, thanks. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually think um, the social solidarity, I think a lot of it is made in the media of, of, of disagreement, but when you actually look at the sacrifices that people have made, uh, not just the healthcare workers, but across society, the sacrifices people have made in order to keep other people safe, uh, I, I, you know, it, it reaffirms my faith in humanity uh, and the way that um, researchers across the world collaborated. You know, the, why did we get vaccines really quickly? Because researchers across the world at the beginning of 2020 shared everything they knew to get to just an incredible speed to get to the point where they could hand that knowledge over to pharmaceutical companies to do what pharmaceutical companies do really well, which is take something through the, the clinical regulatory process. So yes, the private sector did a great job when it got to their area of expertise, but the scientists across the world in universities across the world did astounding work first. And that also, I think, is a demonstration of um, the social value and the social importance of us investing in that fundamental uh, research capacity. If we hadn't been doing that, if we hadn't been investing in uh, virus and immunology research for the past two, three decades, the way we have been, we wouldn't have had the vaccines at the speed we did. So, uh, you know, as social cohesion, uh, the basic decency of the vast majority of us and the brilliance of our research networks around the world, just all of both of those astound me. They are, they are not silver linings, they are platinum linings. What about you, Isabel? Well, actually building on that, uh, that response, uh, I would say that working together, like the significant collaboration that's occurred, uh, you know, especially in the long COVID space that I've been working in, 
and the blending and the blurring of boundaries. I mean, people have just, you know, uh, reached out and have just, you know, pitched in. And, uh, you know, that's been incredible. And then I think the other piece, uh, the, the silver lining is, you know, our ability to look to patients with lived experience to guide us in this work. And I don't think that's happened previously to the extent that it's happening now. So uh, those would be my points. Simo? Two points. Um, first, I think we now see um, post-infectious complex chronic disease like myalgic encephalomyelitis, but we, we have other disease like Lyme disease, lupus, all these complex diseases um, that, that, that we, we did not, well, basically for 30 years, we did not do a good, a good job to organize care, not a good job at all. But now we, we understand, we see um, there is a lot of research that's going to impact them. And I'm very hopeful that, that we can actually build something that helps any of these population from, from any other pandemic and the previous one that, that are also suffering. So that's the first thing. And in line with this, there, there, across all this, there is, I work a lot on post-pandemic recovery. Um, it fascinates me about like, how do we do this, the frameworks. And there is this beautiful document that was done by CIHR and the United Nations. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's a post-pandemic framework for research. Um, and, and they talk about sustainability. And I was not aware of that, but many people were aware for a very, very long time. So basically what they say in, in, in there is that the two year of the pandemic were actually just a wake up call for many things that are going to happen over the next two decades with climate change. So it's the era of sustainability and how we rebuild our health system to be more sustainable in all the, the next crises that, that are going to, to happen. So I think it will drive fundamental change to our health system. And I'm really happy to, well, start my career at the, the beginning of all this. <laughs> Thank you so much. That wraps up our show for today. Uh, a huge thank you to the three of our guests, Dr. Christopher McCabe, Isabel Henderson, and Simone de Carey for joining us and sharing information about their expertise. Uh, we hope that you'll take this information and share it with your colleagues. And if you work with patients, we hope you'll share the resources from these four different webinars uh, with them. The replays of this series is available on the Alberta Health Services YouTube channel under the Long COVID Webinar playlist and as a podcast on the Alberta Health Services SoundCloud account under Long COVID Podcast. A special thanks to our digital media and communication teams for all of their help in recording and posting of these webinars. And a thank you to each of you that's taken the time out of your day to tune in and make these events a really big success. Uh, while this is the end of this short webinar and podcast series, we have lots of work ahead of us to support Long COVID, and we hope that our paths cross with you again. Until next time. Together, we do amazing things every day.